0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Hilary Kale, co-host of The Religion Channel, and today I'm pleased to introduce Matt Tomlinson, professor of anthropology at Australian National University. His research focuses on Fijian language and culture, especially ritual performance and religious politics. His latest monograph, Ritual Textuality, Pattern and Motion and Performance, explores those topics and much more. It was published in 2014 with Oxford University Press. Hello, Matt Tomlinson, and welcome.
1: Hello, Hilary Kale. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Thanks for being here. So I'd like to begin at the beginning, um, the real beginning here. What drew you to anthropology and to the study of ritual and linguistics in particular?
1: yeah so uh, to begin at the very beginning I was I was born in 1970 in New Jersey and I think that actually had a lot to do with becoming an anthropologist because um, growing up I just loved reading about other cultures just just thinking about the, the the wild diversity of the rest of the world you know Egypt and China and Peru it just seemed like such a, a wild place but I grew up actually in a fairly small town and always felt like I really wanted to travel I really wanted to get out there but My family were homebodies, and this is no knock on New Jersey, but I just felt like the world was bigger and there was more out there, and I wanted to see it. Um, And I didn't really know much about anthropology academically, but I enrolled as an undergraduate at Rutgers University. And, um, you know, with the distribution requirements, I wound up taking an anthropology Course and said, "Right, this is it. This is the kind of thing that I've always known I wanted to do." And it sort of blew my mind as an eighteen-year-old undergraduate that you could really take seriously what what people were saying philosophically, intellectually, in Central Africa and in Oceania, and and knowing what they thought and felt was was important in and of itself. So that's sort of the anthropology background. The religion aspect is trickier, as religion often is. Um, I was. Raised in a Unitarian fellowship, and I don't know how many people know what Unitarianism is, but it was—it's a Unitarian Universalism is an—it's um, a denomination that was historically Christian, but fairly left-wing politically progressive, and into the, the 60s and the 70s, and then the 80s, it, it sort of grew. Um, I would never say it's secular because it, it's all about humanity and spirituality. It's—it's a humanistic spirituality, but. Going to a Unitarian fellowship as a child, um, it was almost like an introduction to the anthropology of religion course, where uh, Unitarianism was keen on not teaching kids doctrine, except, you know, be humanistic, care about your fellow human beings. But other than that, it was pretty much, let's talk about what Jews believe. Let's talk about what Hindus believe. And today, let's let's do a Buddhist ceremony. And um, it was really great fun. When I was young, but, you know, it it only opened up questions. And so I think I was interested in that. But the other thing is, you know, I was coming of age in in the 1980s in New Jersey. And I just I, I always felt interested in knowing more about religion intellectually. But, you know, religion was very much in the air politically at the time. So I mean Jerry Falwell and and Pat Robertson. So I, the first election, presidential election in the U.S. that I could vote in when I was of age was 1988, and Pat Robertson had been a serious candidate in the Republican primaries that year. So as I'm as I'm interested in other cultures and starting to learn at university that I can study other cultures for a living, I'm also you thinking and hearing about um, in the U.S the relationship between religious authority and political authority and a great deal of discourse about the separation of church and state, Well, it's very clear that a lot of people uh, would like to reconfigure that boundary or that separation between church and state. So I guess that's, that's the beginning of the beginning, how I got into it to begin with.
0: So what about, what about Fiji then? So you're, you're in New Jersey, you're at Rutgers, you're, you're thinking about Pat Robertson, and you end up in
1: Fiji. <laughs> that's right. How, how do you that's get right. there? Well, so just through casual reading, actually not academic reading, but I was, you know, reading about other places. And um, I I became aware that Fiji had gone through some coups in 1987 in which religion was very explicitly at issue because uh, the population of Fiji uh, just in the mid 80s was about half indigenous Fijian and half citizens of Indian descent who had come from South Asia as indentured laborers around the turn of the 20th century. And there's a lot of, um, through the colonial period, there was a lot of tension between the groups and the British, of course, strategically kept the group separate. In fact, encouraging Indo-Fijians to build a plantation economy and encouraging indigenous Fijians to sort of stay in the villages and be traditional. And when independence came about in 1970, Uh, For the first 17 years of Fiji's existence, things more or less went smoothly. But there were increasing tensions because indigenous Fijians resented feeling like they were in a secondary position economically. They were worried about losing control of the nation politically in the independence era. And then, in fact, in elections in 1987, they really felt they could see the tide turning. Now, of course, with a lot of political threats, Um, Many analysts have looked back and said indigenous Fijians, in fact, have most of the advantages structurally in Fiji. For example, only indigenous Fijian kin groups can own land. So all of those plantations are on land that is inalienably owned by indigenous Fijians. But what interested me about all of this was that religion gets pulled into the debates and the disputes between indigenous Fijians and Indo-Fijians as an emblem of difference. So indigenous Fijians converted early and enthusiastically to Methodism. The first British Wesleyans came to Fiji in the 1830s, and by the mid-1850s, the very large majority of indigenous Fijians were members of the Methodist Church. The British missionaries were there when the Uh, Indo-Fijian migrants started to arrive, and they made some token effort. They did make some efforts at converting, but they were very unsuccessful. And so the large majority of Indian citizens in Fiji um, remain Hindus and Muslims. And so this, as you can imagine, in, in a time of general political dispute, this becomes a real emblem of difference and a real point of argument. And you get this lamination of indigenous identity with Christian identity with the idea of political sovereignty um, on, the, on the indigenous Fijian side. So I just had read about this, just in casual reading, and um, on the one hand, it was this intellectual interest in saying, I really want to understand religion's political dimensions, and wow, this sounds like a great place to study it. The other thing, which, you know, you're not you have to be careful saying this as an anthropologist, but there was the romantic side that Fiji was just about as far in the world as I could get from New Jersey. And again, I enjoyed I love New Jersey. I love it very much. It's my home originally. But, you know, I wanted to do research that was really, really, really far away. And Fiji definitely fit the bill.
0: Yeah, I I can't you know, I can't remember who it was. I feel like it might have been Harvey Whitehouse but who sort of, um, I heard speak about you know, going very, very far away and then discovering Christianity there and being sort of, you know, sort of underwhelmed, right? That wasn't what he, what he had been hoping to, to find when he went so far away. So did you go sort of realizing that you were going to find Methodists? How did you start working on Christianity specifically?
1: Yeah. Well, no, this is a brilliant question, because I did go expecting to find Methodists. I'd done just enough sort of background reading that I knew the Methodist church was dominant in Fiji. And I was really keen to study Christianity anthropologically. I thought, here's a real opportunity. And, you know, so few people had written anything. I mean, um, Martha Kaplan did write a bit about Christianity um, in a f- the few years before and then when I started graduate school, but it was always as part of this, uh, Fijian indigenous prophets resistance movement to colonialism. Most, most authors of Fiji, oh, and, and Christina Torren had written a little bit too, but the large majority of authors of Fiji Uh, anthropologists didn't want to touch Christianity because they had that view too. You know, we, we know what it is and that's not what true indigenous religion is. I did explicitly go to Fiji thinking, I want to study Christianity. I want to study it as an indigenous form in the village. But I then received a sort of reverse shock. I was sort of pulled in the opposite direction in that. I found that what Fijians, indigenous Fijians, and this was in Kandavu, which is an island in Southern uh, southern fiji a rural island what they cared about most i think most passionately and what you heard about the most was the chiefly system um, it's the system that you can broadly call the vanua which is v-a-n-u-a and the vanua means literally land but it also means the people on the land and people in a particular chiefdom and just pe- that's all people would talk about the vanua was part of everything it's part of everyday conversation anything political It was talked about all the time in churches and sermons and prayers. And so I said, my goodness, I I came here to study Christianity and I'm getting it. But they want to talk about these classic anthropological subjects of chiefs and, and, and chiefly organization and political authority and land ownership and all this stuff. So I was sort of pulled back a bit and said, oh, no, I've got to pay equal attention to things that I didn't think were originally going to be my focus.
0: Super. And I want to come back to the, the idea of Vanua or Vanua? How do you pronounce uh, it?
1: Yeah, Vanua.
0: Vanua. Okay. Hopefully, hopefully I'll remember that and get it right when I bring it up again in five minutes from now. <laughs> but, um, but I do want to bring it up again because it, it comes out in this book, of course, as you said, you know, that this is, this is a book about Fiji in, in a lot of ways, at least those are where the examples are coming from. So you can't ignore it. But before we then move on to the book, could you give us a little more background about your field site? You mentioned um, Kandavu, the the island where where you're doing some work. what are What are the places set the stage for us, if you will? What are the places okay. where you're working?
1: Yeah, okay. so so my dissertation research, which led to my first monograph was mostly conducted in Kandavu. So Kandavu is an island in the south of Fiji, and geographically it's the fourth largest island in Fiji. It's not small, but it only has about 10,000 people. Um, and it only has one small town and administrative center. So it's really villages. And I was in Tavuki, which is usually considered the highest ranked chiefly village in Kandavu, although Kandavu is also famous for its balkanized chiefdoms. So on the one hand, lots of people from other districts and chiefdoms in Kandavu would say, no, we're more important than Tavuki. But When all the chiefs of the island get together, it's the Tui Tavuki, the the, the chief of Tavuki, who drinks the first cup of kava. So there is ceremonial precedence. But I went there again for the church because that's where the Methodist church headquarters in Kandavu are. They're in Tavuki village. That's where the superintendent Methodist minister lives. And I lived in the house of the superintendent Methodist minister in the village. And there were seven other villages. There's six – sorry – seven total villages in Tavuki Bay, which are all, you know, easily accessible on foot. And um, yeah, that was great. That was sort of very traditional anthropological fieldwork, going to church, um, drinking kava endlessly into the night. Um, The one line I had to draw, I, I went all excited to be the best possible participant observer. And, you know, I forced myself to eat odd seafoods that I would never eat I absolutely immersed myself as deeply in the language as I could. I carried my dictionary with me everywhere and kept trying to study and learn um, as much as I could. But uh, the one line I had to draw in participant observation was playing rugby, because you may know that rural Fijian men are fairly large and incredibly athletic. And I thought, right here's the participant observation point where I'll get killed. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not large. I'm not athletic. And so it was during the, all these rugby games that I would sit with the old men drinking kava and saying, okay, here, here, here's my limit of participation.
0: So, there's, um, there's, so there are a whole bunch of Fijian villagers now who just think that people from New Jersey really just can't handle sports. That's what you're telling me. <laughs>
1: That, that could well be, that could well be, <laughs> although the funny thing I learned, because I kept, you know, kept going back to Kandavu, and the thing I learned is Fijians are the most generous people on the planet, and m- your reputation always rises when you go away, so other people would go through and they'd say, oh, wow, I heard that, you know, you adapted so well, and I thought, no, it was pretty rough, but, you know, y- you would get all these compliments, and then I realized I was hearing these almost hagiographic stories about former Peace Corps volunteers, People in Kandavu loved saying, man, we had the best Peace Corps volunteers. We totally Fijianized them. They went back to Seattle, and they were fishing, and they were sitting on the floor cross-legged. And, you know, man, they really brought Fiji back and taught people in Seattle about Fiji. So, so your reputation as a foreign researcher can only go up once you leave. And then the problem is when you return and, you know, you're still speaking grammatically fractured Fijian and making all these basic errors in their thinking – you used to know so much and you, you want to say, well, not really, but thank you. That's very kind of you.
0: That's right. That's great though. I mean, you know, if that's the way that generosity goes, that, that they're optimistic at first, that's, that's, that's a good way to be. So, so there you were, you know, not participating in rugby, but sitting on the side and drinking endless <laughs> cups of kava with, mm. uh, with the men of the village. As you said, you know, you were bringing your dictionary around with you everywhere Your work is really focused a lot on language and linguistics. Was your PhD actually in linguistic anthropology, or was that something that that you tended towards afterwards or during your research?
1: Oh, you've hit on my dark secret, which is that um, I, I usually consider myself a cultural anthropologist with strong linguistic interests. But... I don't have formal training in linguistics at all. I've never actually taken a linguistics class in my life unless you can. I took one graduate class with William Labov, but it was just on narrative analysis. And it was very it was really fun. And it was not a deep um, linguistic key linguistic class. Um, really, what happened to me was so I went to Rutgers and I started in 89 and finished in 93. And Susan Gal was one of the was there at the time. And not only is she, of course, a brilliant scholar, but she was just a fantastic teacher. So I said, wow, OK, language is a, there's a huge amount to learn about language and social life. Then I went to uh, University of Pennsylvania for my graduate studies. And my first supervisor was Webb Keane, who, you know, again, is he is a cultural anthropologist, but extremely well informed linguistically and does has a lot of linguistic anthropological influence in his in his work as Michael Silverstein was one of his um uh, supervisors. And then Webb went to Michigan, um, I think, during the middle of my candidature. And then Greg Urban became my new supervisor, who is very much a straightforward linguistic anthropologist, of course, also with a strong uh, side in cultural theory. So I was being trained. All my these these wonderful people who were training me were all very linguistically oriented. And um, they convinced me that language really had a lot to tell us about things like religious ritual and senses of connection with the transcendent and human relations in general. So it it was that training that led to my language interests.
0: And I mean, for for people listening to this program who are working on religion, your work also really takes seriously the Bible, I must say, which is really nice to see in anthropology. So just a a little shout out there for for our listeners. Um, so um, this book is a book about ritual. Now, this isn't to say that texts and language is absent whatsoever in this book. And your work has tackled ritual before, of course, but to my mind, at least, this book seemed to be the clearest statement of how you're intervening in ritual studies. Um, and, and it's published with Oxford University Press in also a ritual studies series um, right. as well, Right. So um, can you tell me more about how you theorize ritual in this book? What kind of an intervention you're making?
1: Yeah, sure. But could I back up just a little bit and explain that? So what we've been talking about, my time in Kandavu and all that, um, was that's what led to my first monograph, which came out in 2009. Now, this book, Ritual Textuality, it really started in 2009, around the time that first book was coming out. In 2009, I was transitioning for various reasons. I wanted to keep studying religion and politics in Fiji, but I wanted to move to the capital city of Fiji, which is Suva. And so I'd set up this very ambitious research project, which, like many um, ambitious and ethnographically oriented research projects, fell completely flat once I actually got there and realized that many of the things I intended to do really weren't going to work out. For one thing, I confidently announced that I was going to work with the Fiji Council of Churches, and it turns out that they'd ceased to exist shortly before I showed up. So that's not going to happen. But what happened was I based myself just to live At the Pacific Theological College, which is an ecumenical theological college in Suva, and it's a fantastic place. It draws students from all over the Pacific. So you've got Fijians, Tongans, Samoans, Tahitians, PNG citizens, Solomon Islanders, everyone in the Pacific who um, is sort of a mainstream Protestant who's interested in becoming a theologian. It's the Pacific Theological College, PTC, that they come to. So as I was there... um, That's really where ritual textuality, the book, started to develop. And it was because of these things that I hadn't predicted being part of the research that started to come up. And one of the things was that we can talk about the individual chapters in the book, but I'll just say the third chapter is all about the ritual symbolism of kava drinking. And um, I've, as you know, I've drank many, many, many thousands of cups of kava in my lifetime, and I've already written about it in various, various, from various angles but suddenly I'm in a theological institution where theologians have been writing about kava as a form of communion and thinking of it as this chiastic structure where it unites the people and the chiefs. It, it, it sort of creates a sacred unit of the vanua, And the same way that drinking um, wine and eating wafers in Christian communion can unite you in the body of Christ. So it's PTC. These ideas start to develop. But it was also these unexpected um, random moments kind of that led to the book because um, one night early in my uh, stay at PTC, I just decided to wander down to this Pentecostal crusade and figured what the heck I would bring along my camera and my audio recorder in case anything interesting happened. Wow. Wow. I mean, (laughs) yes, interesting stuff definitely happened, and I was blown away. I kind of knew. I mean, I'd seen you know videos of Pentecostal rallies. I'd read plenty about them. I'd read Simon Coleman pretty extensively, so I kind of thought I knew what I was in for, but I was still blown away, and I thought, I have got to write about this. And it was sitting there at PTC and trying to sort out these issues and saying, hey, wait a second, my old interests about religious politics – are still here, but they're. it's coming into something new about ritual form, ritual patterns. And I think if I'm going to write about kava and communion, I think I can also write about a Pentecostal sermon because clearly what's going on here is the creation of texts. And so this is why I say in, in the book, I don't define ritual. I'm not trying to give any concrete single definition, but I say that I approach ritual in terms of textualization, And I know a lot of readers, I mean, n-textualization is such a jargony word, but it just means turning all these signs and texts that are kind of out, especially signs and texts that are pre-existing in an event, really trying to put them together in a sometimes formulaic way, but in a way that's always replicable in the future. So you're creating something that's a pattern- or a string of signs, something like that, that people can take up and reproduce in the future. And so for me, that's what ritual is, an act of intextualization in these various forms. Right,
0: and as you say in the book, that it's actually something that that then becomes replicable and detachable from its original context as well, so it can be repeated in new and transformative sort of ways, um, which gets it actually, I mean, one of, and you state this right from the beginning, but one of the most interesting things about this text I mean, your text, rather, your book, <laughs> is how you, you know, you juxtapose, as you note, this idea of ritual, this repeated pattern performance with the notion of motion, that you're right. putting these two things together that we might at least at first see as as um, rather different kinds of concepts.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And this, again, is coming from that time at PTC, and I was sitting there and I was I was listening to this Pentecostal sermon that I'd recorded just at the very beginning of my time there. And I just kept listening to it and thinking, um, uh, "Okay, wait, I have to back up just once again really quickly. So because Greg Urban was one of my supervisors, um, he taught me to pay close attention to cultural circulation, discourse circulation in general. How is it that words and text really circulate? And the broader Thing that circulation ties into, of course, is the question of motion. How do things move in social life? And I mean, anthropologists have just been utterly besotted with motion for however many couple of decades now, where everything about globalization, everything about migration, everything about commodities, the global commodities is tracked in terms of motion. But motion has almost become this uber metaphor for any kind of activity in in human social life. And so on the one hand, I'm listening to this Pentecostal sermon, and I'm thinking about how he's trying to get people to move and jump around, and that's going to make God move. That's going to make the Holy Ghost fall and Jesus walk. And everything about it is this intense kinetic motion. And at the same time, I'm thinking – I'm a little bit wary of the metaphor of motion because people talk about flows so easily and circulation so easily that it almost seems automatic. And if there's one thing we know about ritual is it's never automatic. It takes a lot of work. And so it's trying to put these two halves together, the patterns and the motion. And, uh, yeah, that's what this book is an attempt to do is to say we, we have to see those two in the same frame.
0: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. What were you reading as as you were writing this book, I mean Simon Coleman comes into it, Bakhtin comes into it.
1: Yeah, Bakhtin is really key, I think. Although I don't remember how much I actually cite him, but he's he's huge. Joel Robbins has been really massively influential, not just for developing, um, you know, broadly speaking, an anthropology of Christianity that sees itself as a field in dialogue with itself. But also his, his, he's written really incisively on anthropology and theology and how anthropologists ought to be thinking about otherness in ways that um, we can draw on theologi- theology intellectually, even if we still maybe share different commitments in our own lives about universal values. Um, Joel, you know, I always go back to Susan Harding's book, Book of Jerry Falwell. I can't remember how many times I've returned to that. Um, during the writing of ritual textuality, but before then, too, because uh, she's so good on narrative and on biblical typology, um, the idea that these biblical characters are going to be recreated in people's lives in the present. Um, Webb Keane, Greg Urban, uh, they're always sort of part of my ongoing readings. Um, but then it depends on the individual chapters, right? So that, for example, Sue Gal was crucial for the chapter on happy deaths, so there's a chapter in ritual textuality about how the Methodist missionaries became obsessed in the Victorian era with watching people die happily, right? They were, they were going to die by proclaiming God's goodness and mercy and that they were going to heaven. And the thing that the Methodist missionaries really, really like to do – was to observe these happy deaths because it was proof of mission progress, but then to publicize them, to make these stories really well known. So they would write accounts and they would be published in missionary magazines, and it would become clear to readers in Britain and Australia that Fiji was what being won for Christ. And how did we know that? Because this man died. Um, with visions of angels, quoting, quoting Corinthians. That's how we know that we're making progress. And that chapter is so very directly inspired by Susan Gow's work on fractal recursivity because she's got this, well, she's got a couple things, but I was most um, immediately going to this article she's got in the journal differences about publicity and privacy and how she she works in Hungary. And she was writing about how Hungarian state planners back in the eighties needed to create a zone of privatized economic activity but they could only do so by recalibrating it as something for the public benefit so the public and private divide was very much something that the hungarian planners needed to manipulate in a particular way to accomplish what they wanted and what i was trying to do in that particular chapter so this is sugal's influence is saying yeah methodist missionaries are trying to redefine life and death but also privacy and publicity when they're when they're writing these sort of Exuberant accounts of how people are dying so wonderfully a world away from their readers
0: that's right and using and actually using those accounts as you were saying I mean these are actually circulating accounts in England and also the you know the accounts of also the good deaths of the missionaries themselves that then yes. are are expected to um, you know be recalled by the indigenous people and later maybe um, later maybe create conversions even after their death,
1: right? These... That's right. That's right. And imitated. So the most famous early missionary death in Fiji was the Reverend John Hunt, who was a tireless worker and a big, strong guy, very popular with Fijians for being absolutely inexhaustible worker, clearly a man who loved them, worked incredibly hard, and of course died young, as a lot of missionaries did back in the 1840s. But his death was so inspiring that Ratu Dakambau, who was Fiji's paramount chief at the time that Fiji was ceded to um, Queen Victoria, decades later, he had seen Hunt's death as a model. Um, it played a part in his eventual conversion. He held out converting for a long time. But because he was a paramount chief, once he converted in the mid-1850s, that's when most of Fiji followed. Um, and then when he, Ratu Dakambau died in the 1870s, um, he sort of, imi- I, don't, I don't know to say he imitated Hunt's death, but it clearly had been a model for him and other Fijians on how one is a proper Christian, which involves not only living, but also dying the right way.
0: Right. It sounds like John Hunt, the the sort of virile missionary hard worker, was probably also a good rugby player, you think?
1: <laughs> I'll admit I'm a little bit jealous of him, but you know, most of the missionaries were more like me. <laughs> they, they, they They had a they did struggle, and they didn't seem to be so physically adept, but um, anyway.
0: <laughs> so so this book is, is a really fun one to teach, because I'm not sure if our, our listeners will have quite caught on yet, because we actually have been going through, you've been bringing up all sorts of ideas really organically in our discussion. But this book is a fun one to teach, because you so carefully lead your reader through a series of four very clear and also very varied um, examples that then illustrate the various ritual patterns that you discerned while you were doing your field work. Um, so you actually begin your first chapter is about that Pentecostal rally. I'm not sure if it's the same rally, but, but about a Pentecostal rally. And you use that to talk about this, this first idea of ritual as a performative path. Um, so can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So that is the very same Pentecostal rally. And, um, so the general type, again, I, I had a hard time because I knew that reviewers would say, oh, this is just a typology. And sure enough, one of the reviewers said, this is just a typology. And so my defensive posturing in the book saying, this isn't just a typology, may be overstated, but there are different categories that I'm trying to organize uh, these analyses in, and one is sequence, right? So this idea of ritual being some rituals really depending for a sense of efficacy, people getting a sense of efficacy from them on sequence, right? You doing things in the proper order is going to lead to a particular conclusion, or it may not. But the fact of sequentiality is both something that people might aim for, and then reflect upon when they're, they're saying, did this really work or didn't it work? And so the performative path is just a phrase that I was using to try to say so performativity in Austin's sense that you're making something happen by saying it. And this Pentecostal preacher was a man from Texas named Kenneth Colgrove. And he was a brilliant preacher. I mean, I'm not Pentecostal, but I love listening to him because he's a verbal artist. Um, But he, like all verbal artists, what seems so wonderfully creative and emergent and in the moment, and to a degree is, is also hugely scripted. I mean, it works as a ritual because you can start to intuit his patterns. You can start to follow what he's saying, both on a micro level where by parallelism, he'll use the same grammatical constructions again and again to build up a sense of of building power or familiarity or inevitability. But at the same time, over the long course of his sermon, he keeps doing the same thing, which he'll move from declarative statements. He'll say things like, the Holy Ghost is here. And then he'll move to things that are either promises or sort of future oriented statements like you're going to feel it. It's going to happen. The Holy Ghost is going to fall. And then he'll move on to commands where he'll actually tell people to do things. um, And he'll say things like uh, or it could either be a straight performative like hallelujah or praise God, you know, Um, or it can be a command like stand up and clap for Jesus. Hooray for Jesus. Amen. So he goes through this pattern again and again. And once I started, once I found this pattern in the text, I mean, it's remarkable how consistent he is. And it seemed that for him, I don't know him personally. I've never met him outside this event. And I only met him sitting in a grandstand a long ways from him. But it it seems very clear that the force of his sermon is strongly conveyed through the sequence. It is this repetitive sequence. And so sequentiality was one of the things I wanted to analyze. And it seemed like that Pentecostal sermon was a really fun place to start. But the more I started looking at it, the more, I mean, of course, so many rituals are built on sequences. The question is then what is it that configures the sequences? How are the different parts articulated? And um, of course, as you yourself know, because I know you're a scholar of pilgrimage sequences can seem to work perfectly, but then still be considered failures after the fact where people are confused why the ritual didn't turn out the way it was. And I try to leave that Pentecostal chapter a little bit ambiguous because he was really trying to get everybody to be saved and go up front and start stand in front of the, the, the preaching platform and start um, speaking in tongues and then get baptized. And several dozen did, but there were many hundreds of people there who didn't. So I'm I'm just leaving that open as to how different people found that successful or not. But yeah, so sequence was the that sequence was the first big chunk of the book.
0: Yeah, and it's a really nice example, too, because as, as you implied before, you know, there is both then the motion in terms of the texts and the speech, but also the actual physical motion of people in action, jumping for Jesus or going up to the, the front and speaking in tongues and or coming and going from the Pentecostal rally itself. Um,
1: yes, And what I love about that is because it's such literal embodied motion. I mean, you can't miss it. It's all, it's what this whole Pentecostal energy is all about. And that is definitely why it's the first, the first chapter in the book, because I thought this illustrates the kind of points I'm trying to make. The later chapters, Still focus on motion, but it gets a bit more metaphorical where it's motions of, it's ideas of progress, where it's idea of how the land moves versus how people move. And motion is still key, I think, to understanding the later chapters, obviously. But that first chapter with the Pentecostal sermon makes it so explicit. It makes it so exciting and so much there on the surface. You can see it because people were running, they were jumping, they were clapping. And that was the key to the whole point. It was that they were going to move to make God move. And then God was going to move spiritually and change their lives.
0: Yeah. I think that, however, the next chapter, the third chapter, which you already spoke about a bit because it sounds like that was actually um, one of the chapters that you began thinking about. The third chapter for me was actually my favorite, maybe because Ah. I don't know that much about Fiji. And so the third chapter begins with this question that you already mentioned um, during our discussion, about these theologians, right, these, these folks at PTC who are thinking about how there is um, confluence between the ritual of communion and Christianity and then the ritual of kava drinking. And on the surface, the two look like they would have a lot in common. Um, people sit around, right, they maybe pass a cup, they're drinking something. Um, yeah. Now, you really delve into that, and, and in fact, you say that it's not so simple, um, so tell us a bit about that and, and maybe you could recap also this idea of Vanua, because for me, that was one of the things that I started to understand much better after reading that chapter.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear this, that you, I'm thrilled to hear that you like the chapter because it actually is a sentimental favorite of mine. And not only because it focuses on Kava, but, um, yeah, it, this was the argument that it took me a long time to realize how it fit together, but it felt like when it fit together, it made a lot of sense. So I, I don't know, I shouldn't say that, but I that's it feels strong to me. And he, yeah, here's the key to ch- that chapter, uh, chapter three on kava and communion, is this double sense of the word venua. So sort of the, the 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 baseline definition for venua, it just means place. So it could even mean a place on your body, you know, which venua of your body hurts. But usually it means land. It usually means the land, the soil, the earth. Um... And then it gets uh, extended, or I should say, actually gets uh, limited to mean particular pieces of land, this chiefdom. So the chiefdom of, uh, so Tavuki is part of a chiefdom called Nadolase. So you call it Navanua Nadolase. It's the Venua of Nadolase. So that's land. And then Venua's secondary meaning, well, I shouldn't say secondary, but its complementary meaning is the people of the land, and specifically not the chiefs. So the chiefs are the chiefs. And who do they rule over? They rule over the Venua, which is that landscape, but those people there. It's the body of people in the chiefdom. So what I got excited about in this chapter three was, yes, kava drinking very much seems to be a form of communion, semiotically, in that you're combining two things chiastically. You're you're taking one element into another while putting that other element back into the first.
0: That's sort of so crisscross, as you say. Exactly. A kind of exactly. Cross pattern, yeah.
1: That's right. And... um so, where in Christian communion, the person puts themselves into the body of Christ by taking the body of Christ into themselves, it seemed to me that people in Fijian kava sessions, even really casual ones, and I have to emphasize this, kava sessions can be incredibly formal and, and, and formulaic and, and reverential and marked by long silence and strictly controlled motions, or they can be relaxed, riotous, three people getting buzzed on kava in the middle of an afternoon with nothing better to do. And it doesn't matter. Both those rituals, the super formal one and the super informal one, have a degree of formality, which is this patterning um, of service. You always serve in a particular order. You make particular announcements to call out that the kava is prepared. You clap in a particular way, etc. And my argument was both of these kinds of kava sessions, the very formal and the non-formal, are these forms of communion, because what people are doing is putting themselves into the Vanua, the land, as they take, oh sorry, they're putting themselves into the Vanua as this body of all the people they belong to. So by drinking with people in Tavuki, you're part of the Vanua of Nado Lase. But you're doing that by drinking this product of the soil, the Vanua. Well, soil itself is Angelli, but it's part of the venua you're drinking this product of the venua of nadalase and putting that literally into your body so you're putting yourself into the venua as people by taking the venua as place into yourself and then the way motion comes into this then is not as on the surface as in the pentecostal crusade but it's very much there because land and v- the venua as land is supposed to be a very stable thing i mean this is the Christian aspect. It's given by God. This is God's gift to indigenous Fijians, and indigenous Fijians have their uh, revered migration histories of really belonging to a place that's going to endure and is always going to be their homeland. And a story that all Fijian researchers will tell you, and I'll tell it to you now, but you'll hear it from other Fiji researchers, is that first moment of shock where they're talking to they're starting out they're early in their research and I've heard this story from other researchers many times they'll be starting out their research they'll be hanging out in Suva they'll meet someone who says they're from the island where they or the district or the chieftain where they want to go do their work and they'll say oh you're you're really from that place I want to go to when were you there most recently and they'll say never Right? It doesn't matter. You're there eternally. You're, your ancestors are from there. You're always going to be from there. It doesn't matter. You would like to go back there, but when you do, you'll have enormous obligations, but it's a place you'll eternally be from. So on the one hand, you've got this sense of real eternal stability in the land as place. But as people do move because there's these histories of migration, because there's modern migration all over Fiji and Australia and, you know, other parts of the world. But there's also those ancient migrations where people of Nadalase followed a very particular pattern through Fiji before they arrived in Kandavu. So for me, this is where emotion gets really exciting in thinking about kava sessions, is that the two senses of venua, which are always conjoined, can actually be analytically separated just enough to see that one side of it moves and the other side of it is immobile. And you're bringing those together in kava drinking.
0: Fantastic. And how then does that... Um, to, to bring it back to the original context that we were talking about in terms of Christianity, and you're you're sitting there reading old theses at, at the Pacific Theological College, how does that then correspond to this question about communion?
1: Well, that's another huge question, because when I first started thinking about it, and I sort of naively assumed that, well, you know, it, it may, would make so much sense to use kava, in a Christian ritual, you would think, just because the semiotic parallels are so strong. But in fact, most Fijian Methodists find this utterly horrifying. The idea that you would actually bring kava into church is just no. You would never do that, and that's because it has such a strong tie to the ancestors, and the ancestors who are non-Christian can continue to curse people today. So it's very much a no-go zone. It's the sort of uh, it's too close for comfort. Um, but, what I found, and i didn 't know this before before reading all this stuff at PTC, was there were some adventurous minded theologians that sort of experimented with doing this back in the '70s and the experiments were total failure well they weren 't total failures because they got sort of token compliments, and people said that was interesting, um, but no it 's never it never caught on, and in fact, um, it, I think most people would resist very strongly the idea that they can go together but as I, as I say in the book, there is one Fijian theologian who seems very comfortable with the idea, but, you know, like lots of um, very learned and very senior theologians, he's thinking way more liberally than most people below him. Almost
0: thinking like a Unitarian, if you will.
1: Well, you might think <laughs> so. And in fact, I once, asked, I once asked a Tongan theologian about kava and, you know, using kava in communion, and he sort of smiled and laughed and said something like, oh, Americans always ask that kind of question. <laughs> so maybe American Unitarian, I don't know what, but I was very excited by the idea. And at least one Fijian theologian is, but for but for most, no, this is the problem with kava. They love drinking it, and they love drinking it as good Christians, but it's got this fundamentally anti-Christian aspect, which Methodists acknowledge and sort of bracket. They drink it a lot, and maybe they pray that the session be clean and okay, but they drink it all the time, and they kind of bracket that question of its non-Christian or even anti-Christian aspects, but it's precisely what evangelicals and Pentecostals pick up on and say, you're serving devils. When you drink kava, um, you're serving devils. Demons come running when they hear those kava announcements. This is what you're doing. You're getting in touch. You're getting in touch with evil forces. I should also just explain for listeners, kava is not alcoholic. Just in case this, uh, this is a, a misapprehension. Kava is a narcotic, but it's extremely mild. It's extremely mild. So you can drink it for several hours, and you'd simply get a pleasant, numb sensation. Um, you're surrounded usually by friends, and so there's warm, convivial conversation. It's usually very relaxing beverage, um, but it's not alcoholic. It doesn't change your perceptions. It doesn't change your emotions. It just kind of slowly, gently quietens everything down.
0: But it's this question about the role of the ancestors. I would presume that's the problem for certain evangelical Seventh-day Adventists or Pentecostals. Is that the the issue there, that by drinking kava you are also imbibing, in some sense, the ancestors?
1: Yes, that's one of the two problems. That's a key one. But they do also go to the Bible and say that strong drink should be understood as kava, even though, you know, it's... uh, I, I think there would be a case to be made that that's not the case, but right. um, their argument is, look, you, you know, strong drink is forbidden and kava is a strong drink.
0: So as you said, I mean, this question about how how close for comfort you can have when you have these semiotic similarities that seem to be so similar that that's actually where the problem lies, I think is just a, a sort of fascinating um, argument or insight, I should say. So something else that, that kind of interested me, you've already mentioned... Um, The uh, chapter four, a little bit about happy deaths and how Susan Gall's notion of fractal recursivity plays out there. Um, I was curious about your sources, so I, I, as someone who you know works in historical archives as well on occasion, I was I was quite happy, quite pleased to see (laughs) how you were combing through those old theses and using old Methodist um, mission archives. What, what brought you to do that kind of historical work? Where, where were you getting your sources for chapter four?
1: Yeah, so when I was originally doing dissertation fieldwork, and I would come to Suva for breaks from the field, um, and Suva is a wonderful place, but there's not a huge amount to do. And kind of just as a way of decompressing, I would go to the National Archives of Fiji and just start looking up the oldest stuff on Kandavu I could find. And I was grateful I got the, the permission of the Methodist church hierarchy to look at those old mission records. And so I'm, I don't pretend to be a historian, but I said, I've got to know something of the background of, of mission history in Kandavu. And, you know, I read through the old mission logs and the annual reports and all that stuff. And it was actually just because it was time away from the field. And I was in Suva and it was interesting. And I wanted to expand what I could understand about that particular field site. I have to say it's been a limitation because I I think I know a fair amount about the mission history of Kandavu, but that's actually quite a small and even somewhat peripheral within Fiji field site. So, you know, there are folks who really do know mission history really well in Fiji who could do a lot more with an analysis of happy deaths. And all of that stuff was just coming from stuff I read because I wanted to read more about Kandavu.
0: And I guess now that I know that Webb Keen was one of your doctoral advisors, that also makes makes a lot of sense, too, because he's done that kind of work, of course.
1: Um, Yeah. No. Yeah. And when I was a student at Penn, they had a fantastic ethnohistory program and seminar series. And um, I was able to work as a research assistant sort of helping coordinate some of the ethnohistory seminars. And it was just fantastic because, again, I wasn't I always thought of myself as a very present tense anthropologist. I want to know what's going on right now this year here. But you can't escape history, and the more you know about it, the better off you'll be in understanding the present, obviously. And the, that training in the ethnohistory series at Penn and, yes, Webb's influence, and then just stumbling across all this stuff in the archives, I said, "Oh, I forgot to do more with this." And I was actually really lucky that I was able then to put an article together on conversions, and it sort of tried to put together these, these interests in language and language ideologies and conversions in Fijian Methodist history, and it came out in Comparative Studies in Society and History in 2009. And it was an attempt to do a couple things, including looking at these historical moments in the mission, these key moments of conversion, which seemed to be marked by particular kinds of silences, where silences were indicating some kind of overwhelming spiritual power in many cases. But that article was also my first attempt – well, no, actually not my first, but an early attempt to critically think through the topic of mana, M-A-N-A, which, of course, is this term found throughout the uh, Pacific Islands that usually means some kind of spiritual power but has all sorts of um, funny elaborations wherever you go and wherever you look at it. So anyway, yeah, so Chapter 4 is definitely the one that emerged most from the archives.
0: So in some ways, um, the last chapter, which is is really the chapter where politics comes to the fore, and in some ways that's the chapter, you know that old Sesame Street song, one of these things just doesn't belong? I mean, that, that's the chapter that in some, ways, in some ways sort of jumps out at the reader because it's not about a religious ritual per se or what we might think of right away as religious ritual. You're talking about political language being used after the 2006 coup. So I was curious... Yeah. It illustrates monologue. I was curious if you could tell us a bit more about that and how you chose that as your example of monologue rather than a more conventional religious one.
1: Right. Well, here's the thing. So again, I'm thinking, trying to think of ritual in terms of intextualization. And my argument about monologue is very much coming from Bakhtin because, of course, Bakhtin wrote about dialogism and the fact that every single utterance you ever speak is conditioned both by previous utterances and the utterances that you anticipate in the future. Um, And, of course, anthropologists went nuts over these ideas in the 80s and 90s, and rightly so. I mean, dialogism is such a fruitful way to think about the operation of language in social life. But Bakhtin also wrote about monologue, about these attempts to create a unifying single voice that denies the presence of other voices. And I was kind of interested in that. Okay, so go back to PTC. There I am, PTC 2009. Uh baini bainimarama who took power in a coup in 2006, is still in power from his coup. He's about to abrogate the Constitution in 2009. Um, he started to threaten the Methodist Church and to cancel their annual conferences. And he's Indo-Fijian. Uh, he's just- no, right? he's indigenous. Vigian. Oh, he's indigenous. No, he's, okay, he's indigenous Fijian, but he gets support from two sources: a fair number of Indo-Fijians like him on the the enemy of my enemy principle; that he's he's committing a coup against those who had previously kicked out Indo-Fijian interests, apparently. Um, but also, he got some support from the Catholic Church because his wife was Catholic. He went to a Catholic school. I guess he had relation, close relations with uh, with the Archbishop at the time. So this is way more than we can get into now, but the Methodist Church in Fiji that sponsor, that uh, supported – sorry, not sponsored, supported – those earlier coups in Fiji in 1987 and 2000, then opposed the coup in 2006, and you sort of had reverse polarities, where then the Catholic Church, which had opposed earlier coups, then the Archbishop of the Catholic Church after Baini Marama's coup says, hey – you know, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. Let's get let's 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 all come together now and support the nation in this troubled time. In other words, forget that a coup happened. Let's get in line behind this new leader. So you have a real reversal of the political dynamics. Anyway, so I'm sitting in PTC in 2009, a couple of years after the coup, but while all the antagonisms are still being played out, and Bainimarama announced that he was going to have a series of dialogue forums with political parties. Right. So probably as a way of appeasing the international community, he said, we're going to bring together political parties to talk about Fiji's future dialogue forums. Now, as the as the details of how these dialogue forums were being planned came out, (laughs) the the question of their dialogism versus their monologism had to come to the fore, because the first thing he did as a condition of attending the dialogue forums was that there were three parties that were excluded. The three biggest, his three biggest opponents, the three major parties. In other words, the three parties that actually had substantial voters said, right, but you can't participate. So you're out. So it's just the minor party. And then the second condition of participating in the dialogue forum was that you agree in advance with all these various principles. Um, so I was sitting there and, you know, I love Fiji and I. I don't think what's gone on has been good at all for the country, but in a dark humor way, this is very funny that the dialogue forums are being promoted when they seem to be entirely monological projects. So I said, This is something I want to work on. It's something I want to think about. And that's what that chapter five is. And you're absolutely right. It does stick out from the rest of the book, but I really wanted it in there because it's all about end textualization, it's about the creation of a particular kind of utterance. Which is meant to be single-voiced, and it might not have overtly religious aspects in its expression, but it certainly is gesturing towards something bigger and more and transcendent. Bainimarama is saying, "We can build a better future, a better united Fiji, if everyone who opposes me will just shut up and agree with everything I say."
0: That's right. Yeah. So that's true. I mean, it really it kind of corresponds to a lot of recent work that actually thinks about religion a lot more broadly and thinks about. Um, things that you might think of as moral discourse rather than explicitly religious discourse. So in that sense, it's actually a nice chapter to to bring your argument even into other realms as well.
1: Thanks. I mean, I did want to keep it in there. And um, you you were very kind in saying that it was a little bit out of step with the others. I can tell you that some other folks who have reviewed the manuscript have been maybe more cutting in saying that it felt out of step with the rest of the manuscript. But Uh, I do realize that, but I also really wanted it in there because, again, so coming back to the four patterns, so the book starts with sequences um, in the Pentecostal sermon, and it moves on to conjunctions, these conjunctions of chiasmus in kava sessions. Then it moves on to these patterns of contrast and fractal recursivity in happy deaths, in which life and death and public and private are being revalued. And then the last pattern is substitution. It's this different kind of semiotic pattern in which... There's a replacement and overriding of kinds of expression, so I, I felt that had to it did fit those other four patterns as a as a different kind um, of pattern compared to the other three
0: yeah, and what about then this question of um, how rituals work because in some ways this is this underlying question that runs throughout right how rituals work how they're effective do they do what we want them to do when we set out um, what what kinds of what kinds of responses did, I, did you come up with after asking that question for yourself?
1: Uh, I don't, if I give away too much, no one's going to buy the book, but um, I don't have a firm answer. But I try to say that I think that these patterns that I'm talking about are part of the way people try to, at least in Fiji and at least in these particular forms, have tried to conduct things we might call ritual. There are patterns of intextualization by which people have attempted to accomplish these larger goals. And it's those patterns themselves are part of the evaluation process, because you look back on what happened and did those steps lead to your salvation or to the progress of the mission or to the creation of the venu'a of Nadalase? And you're, I've always been interested in ritual failure. That's definitely there from my earliest the earliest things I've written. But in the book, it comes up, I don't know if I make it explicit enough, but it comes up most strongly in that last chapter, because I don't think Rama is a successful monologuist at all. And here I go way out on a limb, and maybe I shouldn't have done this, but I sort of invoked you know, Chairman Mao um, at the period of the Cultural Revolution in China, because the stories you get of Mao and his little red book of sayings are just... I mean, it's just extraordinary how the degree of textual circulation that those phrases got, where repeating the sayings of the chairman really became this ongoing, repetitive thing you did to prove that you were a good citizen, and study sessions were memorization sessions, and criticism sessions were displaying the fact that you had memorized the appropriate verses. And what I tried to say in the book is that Baini Maram is kind of trying, in a smaller way, to do a similar thing to get what he considers to be key expressions to be taken up and repeated by other people. So this is a two part thing where you censor the people you don't agree with, but you don't make them fall entirely silent. You try to make them speak, but make them say exactly what you want them to say. But I don't think he's been successful. Of course, there's a huge amount of people in Fiji who don't approve at all of what Vainimarama Rama does. And um, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it there for now. I, I don't think it's a successful ritual. But I think it is definitely an attempt to intertextualize this unitary pattern of discourse with monologue.
0: Fantastic. And and for any graduate students who think that they're going to be able to listen to our interview and therefore not buy your book and not yeah. read it thoroughly, we won't tell them yeah. what, but we've left out many, many ideas. Yeah. So <laughs> let's just, oh, no, let's just I... make sure that, that, you know, let's <laughs> clarify that situation. In so, fact,
1: by listening to this interview, by listening to this interview, I think they're legally obligated to buy the book. No, yeah, that's right. I, that's right. Oh, I, no, I was what I, w- I was kidding because, um, you know, when you're talking about a book, you say I'm addressing this key question of ritual efficacy, but there is not a single answer. What I'm trying to argue is I think ritual efficacy depends both on ritual design and ritual evaluation, which I'm trying to understand in, understand in terms of both pattern and motion brought together. Um, I think. I hope that's part of the answer of ritual efficacy, but surely the answer, any overall answer to ritual efficacy is much bigger than that.
0: Nicely put. And I think that it also then speaks to those of our listeners who are interested in ritual, you know, the kind of question that I asked earlier on about what kind of an impact this makes on ritual studies. I think that, that your answer there also gives a sense of how you're intervening. Um, Now we've only got a few more minutes, but I did want to ask you just before we go, Um, to ask you our standard New Books Network question. We, too, have ritual patterns here at NBN. (laughs) Um, So my question is, what are you working on now?
1: Well, thank you, because this is is a good opportunity to return to those days at PTC back in 2009 when this book, Ritual Textuality, was taking shape. I found that I really love talking to theologians. And, again, I was raised Unitarian, so I was raised to think and ask lots of questions about religion, but I don't have a strong basis for belief for myself. But I was talking to people who are intensely intellectual and engaged in the process of thinking through, um, religion, culture, society, political power, all that stuff. And so I really love my time at PTC. But again, a lot of the things I observed there sort of wound up going into this book on ritual textuality and in terms of patterns and motion. But I knew that in my next project, I wanted to focus very explicitly on theology itself as an anthropological project. So what I've been doing lately, I spent about six months in Auckland, and starting next year I'll spend about six months in Samoa, and I'm joining that with some of the stuff I learned at PTC to look at the work, the written work, of theologians, especially from Fiji, Samoa, and Tonga. And again, like like all projects, it's already changed its focus. So what I originally thought would interest me would be Direct questions of political power and mana, translations of mana in the Bible, and things like that. And although I still have those interests, it turns out what's most fascinating about these oceanic theologians, I think, is their attempts to create dialogues of particular kinds. So this is coming back to Bakhtin and coming back again to monologue. And so this is another reason why I like that. The Bainim Rama chapter is sort of a launching pad for this new project because. I think a great deal of religious and political discourse does aim or does have a tendency to aim sort of towards monologism. So divine speech where God pronounces and you're, you know, God doesn't have co-authors, you know, and you have to either take it up or, or fall silent. There's a sense that divine speech has a degree of monologism and in oceanic oratory traditions. I mean, when chiefs speak, you don't, you don't chat back. You don't talk back. This is not a call and response format. Um, there's an idea that you are quiet and you receive that speech uncritically, and all you can do is either rep- accept it or replicate it in the future. So I'm trying to say that I think both in religious and political traditions, maybe in Christian traditions broadly, but de- definitely in traditional oceanic traditions of performance, there's a lot of space for monologue. There's a lot of space for thinking about unitary voices but the di- but the theologians that i've been talking with are passionate about creating dialogues dialogues of various kinds and this is where i i love bakhtin and really want to problematize him and say dialogism may be inherent to all discourse but it can be really difficult it can be something that's hard to motivate it can be something that fails it can be something that people feel constraint in as much as liberation it closes the dialogue can close down as much as it can open up but the theologians i've been speaking to are really trying to create dialogues between themselves and their churches churches and societies themselves and god and also between theology and anthropology so that is what the new project is
0: fantastic well i'm looking forward to it and thanks so much matt for taking the time to speak to us from australia
1: thank you Hilary. thank you very much